2: To the deal. I have this wacky plan. Eh, you know what? Let me take that last train to the city. Sunday night, Sunday Saturday night into Sunday morning. Take that last train. Get in out early. Get a chance to do some work in the station. See some people I haven't seen for a while. So, I make the train. The train's going along. We get to the second stop. This is this morning, folks. All of a sudden, the lovely announcement... All of the passengers must disembark the train. We're stuck. At a quarter to two in the morning. Man, was it cold outside. Yes, we had to stand outside the train for an hour waiting for another train to come. Listen. I know there are a lot tougher things in the world than that, but man, that was a real wake-up call. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Those of you who have not said it to you before, Happy New Year. This is Bob Salter. Interesting times indeed in our country, in the world, as we continue in this um, ongoing, what we call it, battle- endeavor with the coronavirus. The best thing I can say is try to take care of yourself, get some rest, wash your hands, and be as careful as you possibly can be. I mean, there is realistically only so much that we can do, but we do the best that we can. Now, we're on for an hour this morning. I know it's Getting a little tricky here in terms of exactly how long the show is on during uh, this time of the year. We're on from six to seven today. And we have a great guest who is with us in this hour of our program. Peter Strauss has a very interesting background in that he has practiced trusts and estate law since 1961, has a special expertise in the legal problems of aging and persons with disabilities, end of life issues and the capacity of persons with disabilities to execute legal documents with respect to health care. And he is joining us on our program today. He's a senior partner with the Piero, Connor, and Strauss LLC. He's the recipient of the New York State Bar Association 2019 Attorney Professionalism Award, which is given to one attorney in the state each year. He was honored from 2007 to 2019 as one of the New York metropolitan area's best lawyers and a super lawyer from 2007 to 2016. He is a prolific author. He's written articles for various publications, including New York Law Journal, the uh, bottom line uh, personal, and he has addressed many national professional and uh, consumer organizations And I'm pleased to say that he's going to be uh, joining us in um, this hour of our program Uh, this morning. I think what we will be able to do, we have a lot to get to with him. But in the course of our time with him today, I believe that we are also going to be able to uh, possibly take some calls from some of the folks listening to us as well. Uh, Peter, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Good morning. How does it sound? Sounds great. Sounds absolutely great, as a matter of fact.
1: It's okay. nice, nice
2: to have you with us. I hope you are well.
1: I am. Getting up in the morning, is, this hour, is not something I'm used to, other, but that's certainly not a disease that isn't quickly solved by a good conversation with you.
2: Well, thank you. And you know what they say about getting up at this time in the morning? It's better than the alternative of not getting up.
1: <laughs> right. That's like being on the right side of the grass, right? Exactly. <laughs>
2: This area of law, for the folks who are listening to our discussion today, uh, how did you get into this?
1: You know, it's a question that um, will may surprise people. I, I've been practicing law since 1961, so coming July is when I was first admitted to the bar. And I had a classic practice, um, played around with local politics, hoped that someday maybe I would run for elected office. And I did actually uh, become elected the president of the first New York City Community School Board in 1970 and did that for three years. It was quite educational, but it also taught me that politics could be very divisive of one's family life. So I focused on my law practice and learned to be, I hope, a good, competent, trusted states lawyer, did a lot of wills help people with what they did with their money when they died. Um, And it was an interesting career. I had the opportunity to meet with families and and learn a lot about family dynamics. In the early 80s, I got a call from a friend who was the director of social services at Long Island Jewish Hospital to tell me about a very sad case of a patient who had had a massive stroke, was in a coma, and was going to a nursing home and would probably spend the rest of his life here. He was in his late 60s, had a wife. They lived in Great Neck in a rental apartment. He was a postal worker, had a nice pension. She never worked. The children lived far away. And the problem was that he, of course, would be on Medicaid, and Medicaid for the state of New York wanted to take most of his income. In the state's generosity, it would give the wife three or four hundred dollars of his pension, bringing her up to about eight hundred dollars a month. And their rent was a thousand. No way she could hire a taxi to get from her home to the hospital. There was no public transportation. And how was she going to pay her rent? How was she going to eat? So my friend said to me, Peter, you're a smart kid. Do something. I said, I don't know anything about Medicaid, I don't know anything about government benefits, this is an area of law that is just not something I've studied she said, do something well, Mary was a persuasive lady and I did and I thought about it and thought about it and said, you know what this poor guy has an obligation to support his wife he may be in a coma but that obligation still exists under New York law So it came down to a question of whose rights prevail, the state to have a person now receiving a form of poverty uh, program or a spouse who's poor and needy. So I said to my client, the wife, we're going to sue your husband for support. She said, come on, on. you can't (laughs) sue a man who's comatose. I said, yes, we can. The court will appoint. A guardian ad litem for her and for him, and we'll see what happens. Well, the judge agreed with me. New York State was very angry, but it went on appeal, and we won it all the way up. And it set a precedent. A precedent was that in this new era of a growing aging population, people have rights to good health care under Medicaid. But spouses of those persons who were institutionalized also have rights. The case did more than win a victory for me. It opened up my eyes to a growing aging population who couldn't afford adequate health care, who had needs that weren't being satisfied. And that aging population was going to grow and grow and grow as whatever we call them, the baby boomers, you know, the different names. We're all going to get old, hopefully. And now we have the aged and we have the old, old. Um, You know, of course, that I'm now 84. Mm -hmm. Could have figured that out from, I told you I've been practicing almost 60 years, come a few months. And I see this every day. I see people having healthcare needs most seriously. The need to pay for their long-term care needs. Many Americans will be surprised to learn that Medicare does not cover long-term care. It does a good job for your hospital care. Hopefully you have a Medicare supplement policy. It now covers most basic drugs. That's pretty good. If you go to a nursing home, you'll get 100 days coverage. If the care that you're needing is skilled, you can't go there and get Medicare coverage if you're suffering from dementia and just need to be dressed and bathed and help to walk to the toilet. So you might get 100 days, but after that, you are on your own. And if you can stay at home, which is what most people want to do, yes, if they have dementia or they have Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis, I could make a whole long list of diseases that may be under control in terms of your medical needs, but you can't function, you can't dress yourself, you can't bathe yourself, you can't get to the toilet on your own. You need home care. And in New York State, Medicaid pays for that. Medicare does not. So America has seen seniors, and by the way, younger persons with disabilities are also in the group that I'm speaking about because their needs are very similar. But you have seniors who need to turn to the Medicaid program in order to prevent impoverishment. Mm -hmm. Now, people who are legally poor pretty much automatically get Medicaid. But if you have assets, you are over the eligibility limits in terms of finances. In New York State now, you're only allowed to keep $15,900 plus your house, and your retirement funds don't count. But for people who have more than that, they've saved, they've got two or $300,000 in assets, they hope to leave those assets to their children, they're not eligible for Medicaid. So we do have techniques, and there are some exceptions in the law in terms of eligibility, that we can make middle-income Americans Medicaid eligible. But this is serious with the pandemic, New York State's budget is out of sight. We're seeing new restrictive rules for Medicaid eligibility for the home care benefit, and we're gonna see benefits cut. New rules that are gonna make it more difficult to acquire this. So we need reform. Um, President Biden's plans call for some form of long-term care benefits. Payments to informal family caregivers, which would be wonderful. Um, Greater tax credits if you pay for caregivers. Uh, There are things on the horizon that will help, but the problems are myriad. And we're just beginning to see the effects of budget deficits on important and needed benefits for senior citizens.
2: COVID-19 terms of the pandemic, and we're going to pause for some messages in just a couple of minutes here. How have you seen this impacting your, pers- your professional life?
1: Well, ironically, we have been busier. One would think that people who have family members who've been diagnosed with COVID would be afraid to go out, afraid to contact lawyers. But they call us, we do video conferences, mm-hmm. and they realize that they need legal documents. So people who have put off what's generally called estate planning, we like to call it life planning or future planning, people realize that putting this off was was not appropriate. And um They're calling, they're responding to our outreach, which we do on our website and send out notices through constant contact, use our mailing lists, uh, do quite a bit of marketing. And people have been responsive. So we're doing a lot of planning to get the legal documents in place. Earlier on in the pandemic, we offered to provide healthcare proxies without charge to healthcare workers. We did a few of those. Not too many, because fortunately, healthcare workers were wise enough to have their healthcare proxies and living wills in place. But clients need powers of attorney. Uh, what happens if you really get sick and you can't manage your financial affairs? What happens if you're cognitively impaired <clears throat> because of a particular illness? <laughs> Excuse me, and and you can't make healthcare decisions for yourself. So what we call future planning is setting up management systems for people so that their financial affairs can be managed if they're unable to do it for themselves. And we make sure they have healthcare proxies and living wills so that someone can make medical decisions for them, people that they choose to do these things. And in a sense, We've convinced them that it's a way of keeping control of their lives, even though they may not be able to make their own decisions. Hopefully, they will recover and resume doing those tasks. So, the documents that we prepare, the legal tools, fall into those two categories. Mm -hmm. Managing finances, the basic instrument is a power of attorney. Better still is what is known as a trust What's a trust? A trust is your own private little financial corporation. You take your assets, you place them in this trust. You can be your own trustee as long as you can function. function. You can revoke it, you can amend it, you can change the terms. The trust will pay your bills if you become ill. You have a successor trustee who takes over if you can't do it. You get better, you you come back and take over as your own trustee again. But here's the beauty. If you do die, if you don't make it through whatever the illness is, and right now the one we worry about the most is COVID-19, that trust continues in place, functioning, without any need for court intervention. If you have a will, and everybody says, You know, what do you charge for a simple will? And the answer is, well, number one, there's no such thing as a simple will. And secondly, that in itself isn't a big expense, but it doesn't really work for you. A a will only becomes effective when you die. It doesn't help you with any of the problems of life.
2: Peter, hold that thought, okay, because I want to expand on this, but we have got to take a pause here in our discussion. We'll come back, talk more with you, and also... Start to work into probably some thoughts from some of the folks who are listening to us as well. 6.20 is our time this Sunday morning here on The Fan. Sports Radio 101. It's Championship Sunday on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in discussion with uh, Peter Strauss on our program. Peter is a senior partner with Piero, Connor, and Strauss, LLC. Their uh, website, by the way, is Law P-I-E-R-R-O-L-A-W. That's all as one word, .com. And he's kind enough to be talking with us on our program. Um, As I mentioned, um, he's uh, practiced trusts and estate law since 1961, and has a lot to share with us in our discussion. Um, if there's something that he mentions or something that he has mentioned thus far in our discussion that perhaps you'd like to jump in with a question on, we have a rare opportunity where I believe we might be able to take advantage of some of his expertise. Our phone number at the fan, eight seven seven three three seven sixty six sixty six. you want to join in, feel free. Now, I interrupted you before we paused for our messages. Uh, Peter, you were talking about Um, Actually, you had mentioned wills, and one of the interesting things that always comes up in discussion is this whole idea of whether or not people should basically all be doing wills. And then the whole issue that comes up as well, for a lot of people, they hear that term and they have no idea what a will actually is. Could you explain that for us?
1: A will is a basic tool. It's a document that sets forth your wishes about how your assets will be distributed at the time of your death. It only affects assets in your individual name. Wills do not dispose of assets such as retirement funds, life insurance, bank accounts that you may have jointly with your spouse or a child or a sibling, bank accounts that you might have in trust for a child, brokerage accounts that are set up that say pay on death, too. People are surprised at this. So many people have assets which are joint or have named beneficiaries, And the will says, I leave everything to A, but they've got those accounts, some of them in trust for B and C and D in these bank accounts. And then at the funeral, the children say, well, when are we going to talk about mom's will? And A says, well, there's a will, but it doesn't mean anything because everything was set up jointly with me or in trust for me. And now we have litigation. So understanding what a will is is very critical, and we want to avoid those disputes. Now, that's a very critical point. The other thing I started to say was that wills only come into effect when you die. Right. And they have to be probated. They have to be filed with a petition in the surrogates court in the county where the person lives. And let me tell you something. Delays in the surrogates court, are really pretty horrendous right now. It's taking us three to four months in a good case to get a will officially approved. That's because of the pandemic. It's because of court cutbacks, staffing. The chief judge of the courts have now said that courts are only going to be staffed at 30%. Now, hopefully that will change, but it's never going to go back to normal. My new partner, Karen Kepler, has a case that's been in probate for three years because it's very easy to contest a will and just file objections, and it goes on and on and on because it doesn't get settled. I just had an email from the probate department in the New York County Surrogates Court saying they wouldn't get to attend to a will I just filed for probate for three or four months because of lack of staffing and the COVID virus. So all of those problems can be avoided. And by the way, until that will gets probated, those assets in the decedent's individual name probably can't be accessed. Maybe you can get what are the called preliminary letters, temporary letters showing that you're the executor. But that doesn't allow you to make distributions. It just allows you to pay bills. So we've been advising clients now for a number of years to move... Their testamentary plan—that's that, what the what that means. What happens to your assets when you die? Two living trusts, and you know, maybe if you only have fifty thousand dollars, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But for for the typical middle-income family in the United States, a living trust is doable. Um, You don't put your retirement funds in because that would trigger uh, distribution income tax consequences. But for the most part, you could put most of your assets in that trust. And then at the time of your death, there's a smooth transition to the next generation or continuing that trust or part of it for a child who has disabilities, drafted in a way that that trust will be called a supplemental needs trust And will not disqualify the child from Medicaid benefits or other government benefits, SSI payments. So this is really critical. Now, I want to add one important point here. We're not just talking about planning for older people. Over my career, I've had two or three young people in their 20s and 30s who drove their bike under a truck. Mm. Who've had multiple sclerosis who developed Parkinson's disease at an early age, although that's unusual, who have cerebral palsy from birth perhaps, but function fairly well, yet they're gonna need support, particularly home care aides and companions from the Medicaid program. So the problems that I'm describing, the need to do future planning, not just for what happens when you're dead, but when you're alive and possibly not well.
2: Hmm. Talking with Peter Strauss on our program on the fan this Sunday morning. I'm Bob Solter. Now, when we're talking about this whole idea of um, the importance of planning, I guess we get down into the whole idea of reality. How many people actually really do plan appropriately?
1: Uh, It depends, I think, on where you live, uh, the environment in which you function, and the news and awareness that you have of what's going on around you. Statistics show that only about 30% of residents of the state of New York have living wills. Mm -hmm. A living will is a, I prefer to call it, a health care declaration. It's a statement that you make in writing about the kind of care and treatment that you would wish in emergencies if you are not able to decide for yourself, if you lose the capacity to give what's called informed consent. That's the term that's used in a hospital setting to determine whether the doctors take the instructions from you or someone else. And your living will usually kicks in and your healthcare proxy, the, the power of your agent under the healthcare proxy arises when you're unable to give informed consent. So those documents are very critical, but too few people have them. When the client comes in and says, I just need the, I need the living will and okay, I'll have the trust. I don't want to pay for those other things. That's a, that's a big mistake. Generally we do planning for clients on a, on a fixed fee basis, we we agree on the fee and agree on what our services are going to be, and and in most cases, we're able to stick to that. Um, and that helps clients to know there's some certainty in what the cost will be. And whatever that investment may be, depending on your situation, we think it's worth it because it's not only taking care of the ultimate need, that is to distribute your assets and your savings savings your family, but it provides you with these protections during your lifetime. And, and and it's really critical. And it needs to be reviewed periodically. If there are circumstances that change, you've got a will that says, I give everything to my wife, which for middle-income families may be the appropriate way to go. Um, again, we get into issues of second marriages and children of different marriages. That's a, that's a discussion for, for another hour at another time. But um uh, that will may say, that trust rather will may say that when you die, it goes to your three children equally. Well, you did that will when your children were in their teens or early twenties, and now one of them has developed some psychiatric problems. Very often serious psychiatric problems develop in the late twenties or early thirties. And now if you have a will that isn't changed, and the child who has those illnesses has to go to the hospital. And they may not have health insurance. They would get Medicaid, but for the fact that you had given them one third of your estate, and now they're not eligible. So that's a change in your life circumstance that you've got to change your trust. You've got to convert that trust, at least the share, for the child who developed disabilities later in life. It wasn't known when you did your first draft, Now you know it, change that trust, provide for that child's share in a supplemental needs trust. Maybe you're going to get a divorce, lots of divorces in America. Um, I heard one of the commercials just during the break about people who have gambling problems. Trusts might be the solution, part of the solution for those people. They could transfer their assets if they're willing to do that into a trust that we might make now irrevocable so that the person couldn't withdraw the money and, and you know, lose it because of that illness. So there are lots of things that we can do. We, we look at ourselves as advisors, not lawyers. We don't make decisions for clients. We educate, we provide options, and we discuss the fees, and the clients decide. Hopefully, they'll make the right decisions, but it's not our job to tell them what's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Most clients, when they get the facts and the options are clear, and we speak in English, not legalese, um, we think clients, all clients, are capable of making decisions. Now, if you may have a question for me about that, but I do want to, it, because it leads us to another question of capacity and the ability when you're older and you've been ill, do you lose the ability to do this kind of planning at some point? And that takes up a great deal of my time. And I've done some writing about it. It's, it's a very important subject.
2: Mm-hmm. I didn't ask you something at the very beginning of our discussion that Perhaps I should have, and I also didn't mention in introducing you, and we're talking with uh, Peter Strauss, who's a senior partner with Pierre O'Connor and Strauss, LLC. You are a distinguished adjunct professor of law at uh, New York Law School. For um, young people, is this an area of law that you recommend?
1: Uh, I find that people who take my classes um, become very interested in this. By the way, I have to mention that um, because of COVID-19, New York Law School, like many colleges and universities and graduate programs, have had to strictly modify their program methodology this year. And so New York Law School has gone completely virtual. Mm -hmm. And I run a guardianship clinic there. I take 10 students. Uh, I have them work with mentor lawyers, colleagues of mine who do guardianship work, and they spend 12 to 14 hours a week in the mentor attorney's office working on guardianship cases. And then the courts assign us 10 cases, one for each student. Student works on the case with their mentor lawyer and it involves a tremendous amount of field work they get appointed as court evaluator in a guardianship case that's the court investigator and they go visit the patient at home or in a hospital or in a nursing home they they do interviews with people spouses children et cetera. and a lot of that work required field work field visits well because of the lockdown we're not doing that this year so unfortunately we had to cancel the clinic I also teach a course, in, general course in elder law, and the students in both courses are fascinated by the subject matter because it's very broad-based. From an educational point of view, it teaches the many things. How to interview. What, do, what does counseling mean? What, how do you counsel someone who doesn't want to hear advice? How do you negotiate? You do all this in the context of the clinic, I and mean, why that's why in law schools today, clinical education has become far more important than it used to be. It's a movement that has been very, very useful and successful in training young people to be good lawyers. So they, they can learn in the guardianship clinic techniques and have a develop ability, that will be good for them whether they're going to be art law experts or they're going to go into medical malpractice or they may want to do business law or everything, interviewing, counseling, Mm -hmm. uh, drafting documents. They hear we draft court papers in the clinic. It's fascinating and I'm very sad to say that just earlier this month we had to cancel the clinic because we had to first cancel the fieldwork part and then Students transferred to other clinics where they Mm -hmm. could do it totally virtually, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we'll be back next year. But many of my students are fascinated by the field, see the need, and come to the belief, just as I did after that case involving that man in Long Island Jewish Hospital, that this was a way of contributing to our society as well as getting paid. Peter it Richard. taught me also, uh, Bob, by the way, that that, you know, my dream of going into government service and maybe elected office as a way to accomplish social change. I was able to do that as a result of that case and others that I've worked on over the years to change social policy and government um, programs by poking holes in the way they were written and showing they were not a constitutional in part, or they took away too many rights of people. And so lawyers who are in this field, as in others, are helping to make social change without having to vote in a legislative body.
2: Okay, we're going to take a pause in our discussion and come back. I want to talk about the topic of financial abuse with you. We're talking with Peter Strauss who is a senior partner at Pierre O'Connor and Strauss, LLC. you want to join us in the discussion, you can. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. Sports Radio, 101.9 FM. The
1: Fan! WFM.
2: It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Along at uh, 7 this morning, it's the NFL preview at 7.30. Ooh, part of that um, Melusis morning here. You better, you bets, along with Mark Melusis, Rick Wolf at uh, 8 o'clock with the Sports Edge, and Melusis and Deal back at uh, 9 o'clock with Football Sunday. We're in a discussion with Peter Strauss on our program. Peter is a senior partner at Piero Connor and Strauss, LLC, on the web at pierolaw.com. This topic that I mentioned before we paused for our messages, financial abuse, okay? It's a topic that a lot of people don't like to talk about. A couple of questions with this. First one, what exactly is meant by that term? And then the second question is, why is this such an important topic to
1: be discussed? The second question maybe should have been the first. It's important because it's rampant. And at a time when people are struggling, particularly when they're older, to make ends meet, they don't need to have their money stolen. They don't want to have their money stolen. But it's rampant. And the first question is that it's rampant in many ways. Let me give you a few examples. Mm -hmm. There's bank account break-ins. It's not uncommon for the listeners to hear that their mother or father lives alone, maybe doesn't live alone. Um, Looked at their bank account one morning when it arrived in the mail. Of course, late the day before. And they see charges that, that they can't explain. Someone got into the account. Someone believe it or not, got their password. That's one example. There's internet scams. For those seniors who do use the internet and have email and get these emails from their new best friend in Ghana or (laughs) Russia or Poland or allegedly from Canada, but they're really coming from somewhere in Eastern Europe, Um, they developed a friendship, they're offered unbelievable bargains, or you won a new uh, computer, the latest version of a Sony computer, and if you'll send us the shipping charges, you're going to get a package with a new Sony computer. Wow, that's great. And it comes from a company's name that you know, is, an, is a slightly modified name of some known company, and they send the check. Mm-hmm. There's theft by employees, not just home care aides, most of whom do unbelievably wonderful work under terrible circumstances and low pay. But there are some who are not such good people. And Mama can't get to the bank anymore. Mama needs cash for groceries here miss jones take my card get me some cash get me a hundred dollars well there's a withdrawal but it's not a hundred dollars it's not a thousand because she might notice that or maybe she wouldn't notice the extra zero or she has vision problems maybe it's 200 and that goes on for months there are situations where a home care aide, the bad one, takes mama to the bank and mama starts withdrawing $750 every other week. Up till now the bank people couldn't do anything about that. We're beginning to get a handle on that. The banking industry has worked with uh, the New York State Bar Association and and they now have some duty to report suspicious operations. Um, Telephone scams, neighbors who become friendly. Gee, I saw you down the hall a lot and you were having trouble with the packages. Can I help you? Why don't you call me when you need to go grocery shopping? You know, I'll meet you there. I'll help you home with your packages. Um, that turns into a friendship that leads to some kind of theft. Or making that person the beneficiary of one half of your estate when you die. So I could go on a lot about these things, but there's one more category that's even more serious, and that's theft by family members. We often make family members joint owners on bank accounts. Why? Because it's convenient. They can go to the bank and withdraw money to buy you things, do your shopping for you. But they can also do bad things and often do. 75% of elder financial abuse is performed by family members. I'm pausing so people can let that sink in.
2: That's some number.
1: That's it, right. Right. So what do you do? Well, you set up trusts. You can also work with a program um, that you can purchase from a company called Eversafe. These are friends of ours where Liz Lowy, who used to be the head of the Elder Crimes Unit in Manhattan, uh, part of New York City, for those of you who are from other states, it's one of our five counties, and she now works at this company. She's a principal there, and they have a computer software program that monitors unusual transactions in the financial accounts of older people and alerts children or lawyers or accountants for the family as to what's going on, so there's an opportunity to put a cap on it before it goes too far. There are also agencies that people can call. Every district attorney has either a separate division or uh, an ADA that's assigned to elder financial abuse and elder physical abuse, because there's a lot of that as well. Uh, and, you, you know, if someone wants to call us, we can put them in touch with Eversafe. So... This is a big problem. And complaints can also be made to a division of the FBI called the IC3. Um, You can just look up, put in IC3 on your computers and see where you can make complaints. They keep keep records and they do investigations. Um, The controller of the currency can take complaints about bank accounts. So If people have been victims of this, you can go online and just put in, what do I do about um, elder theft or elder abuse? Uh, The the physical abuse is also a problem, and and there again, there are organizations that can help. But we've got to get a handle on this, and um, President Biden has made proposals, which I hope will be enacted. I can't imagine that they would be controversial to deal with this. So it's one of the things that is a serious problem for seniors, even wealthy seniors. Um, Elizabeth Lowy, who I mentioned a minute ago when she was at the DA's office, prosecuted the Lady Astor case Mm -hmm. where her son was found guilty of massive theft, millions of dollars from her, and went to prison for a short time before he was released because he was so ill and died shortly thereafter. But this is not just about middle-income or poor people. Uh, In fact, there may be a greater number of of upper-middle-income and wealthy people who are victims because the thieves know where it's best to focus their efforts.
2: Mm. When we're talking about this whole idea of, um, you know, you you use the term of... um, the financial abuse being rampant. And when you said that, that's I think probably riveted a lot of people who are listening to us their attention uh, right away. For the children, the sons, the daughters, the grandchildren. Um what sort of things should they be looking out for?
1: The problem uh, with with family theft is that it's very hard for seniors who may be depressed, may be lonely, or may be fearful of losing a good, re- or damaging a good relationship with a child or a grandchild mm. to, either believe what they're seeing or even discuss it. I mean, I've had cases where clients have said, you know, my son is taking money from my accounts, but I need him. I love him. He's needy. He lost his job. Um, so you say, well, these are the things we can do. No, I don't want to do that. Well, let's not provide anything for him when you die. You know, how much is he taking? Well, I don't want to do that either. He'll be mad at me. I said, well, most he can do now is jump on your grave. Um, but it's, it's hard. And, and, and the client may also not be willing to discuss it with his or her professional advisors. So, comes back to the planning stage, if we can develop a relationship. And by the way, we work as a team. We we don't do this alone. We work with the person's accountant, financial planner. If necessary, we bring in professionals to do assessments. And we didn't get back to that subject of capacity. But if we can develop a relationship, some of the questions that we ask our client is, Are there any issues with your children? Are there any issues in terms of your communicating with them? Do you know what their lives are like? You may be aware that they're having financial problems. Maybe they are not the best person to be your agent under the power of attorney. We place gift-giving provisions in powers of attorney because it may be necessary if the person's had a stroke and can't do Medicaid planning, to be able to implement a Medicaid plan when the person can't do it for themselves. So you're giving broad powers to a child or your brother or sister to move your money out of your name. That's important planning, but it comes with problems. So we as professionals, as lawyers, And I think the lawyer has to be skilled in understanding these issues. It's not the guy that did the closing for your house 10 years ago who may not know or have any sophistication. They do what they do. We do what we do. But we have to guide clients to being able to talk about these concerns because they're there. And it may take two or three discussions before the client is willing to talk about it. Mm. And it's a delicate discussion to have.
2: I would imagine so. Um, In terms of elder law, how intricate is it – how intricate is the effort, I guess, to keep up with revisions, changes, because I'm assuming those are happening all the time, like – seems to happen with just about every other kind of law these days.
1: It's true. It happens to a great extent. So very quickly, um, and it ties in with the question of how you pick a good elder law attorney. Mm -hmm. You want to know whether they belong to professional organizations. Here in New York, if a person wants to practice elder law, you can see if they're a member of the New York State Bar Association's Elder Law and Special Needs Section. If they're not, why didn't they join? Why didn't they spend 350 bucks to join the Bar Association and be in the section where you get communications via, via email? We have conferences. Last week, and even into this week, is the annual meeting of the New York State Bar Association. Every section has a day. It's, we're doing it virtually this year. Do they belong to the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys? Uh, it's an organization I helped found in the 1980s, I was one of the founding members. Um, What other professional associations? Have they taken, there's always ongoing courses given by the bar associations. How long have they been practicing it? Um, Experience is important. A lot of the rules, or at least the way to handle yourself, don't happen in the courtroom or, or, or in, in, in these educational programs. Right now there's very serious changes in New York State Medicaid home care where there never used to be a waiting period if you gave your assets away as there was for nursing homes. It was, there was a five year look back for nursing homes, but no look back for community Medicaid. The governor just imposed a two and a half year look back period for Medicaid. If we don't get people to do their planning by April 1st, actually, we have to do it by the end of February, there's going to be a waiting period if you apply for Medicaid home care benefits later on. We just did a webinar on this last, last Thursday. People can go on our website and look at it okay. to hear about these changes. We have a lot of materials on our website about caregiving and Medicaid and estate tax,
2: all right, Peter, I'm going to mention the website at Piero Law, P I E R R O L A W, that's all is one word, dot com. Peter Strauss, Senior Partner, Piero, Connor, and Strauss LLC, kind enough to join us on our program and share an awful lot of information. I'm sure the folks listening to us picked up some good information too. Thank you. And Continue. thank you, Bob. Good health. Certainly the best with your work. NFL preview is coming up here at the top of the hour. You better you bet with Mark Melusis at 7:30, Rick Wolf along with the Sports Edge at 8, and then, hey, Melusis will be back! At 9 o'clock, Melusis and Deal, Football Sunday, Championship Sunday. Enjoy it here on The Fan.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy